Mr. Speaker, there are words to describe the shooting on the Danforth, but those words cannot adequately convey the deep sense of loss felt by those affected. Reese Fallon was an active member of the Beaches East York Young Liberals. She came with us to the Halifax Policy Convention, which she was so excited for, and she helped us to make a positive impact every step of the way. Reese was smart, caring, funny, passionate. Her parents called her sassy. She was out to make the world a better place. Her friends certainly looked up to her, and few people at any age so fully grasped that important sense of public service, be it through her political activism or her dedication to nursing. Reese will be sorely missed by so many. To Doug, Claudine, Riley, Quinn, and to all of Reese's family and friends, our city, our community, our country, all mourn with you and will continue to be here for you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and you just heard a clip from the House of Commons where I recognize Reese Fallon, who we lost in the Danforth shooting. Now, on this episode, I'm joined by Ken Price and Claire Smith to talk gun control. Their daughter, a friend of Reese's, was also a victim in that shooting, but thankfully, she was able to recover. Ken and Claire, thank you so much for joining me. It's our pleasure. Thank you Thanks, for Nate. having us, Nate. We, I think, met for the first time in very strange and, and difficult circumstances in a hospital room, and you are now incredibly powerful advocates for stronger gun control, working alongside other people who have been deeply affected. For those who are less familiar with your story, how did you come to be in the position that you're in today, taking this cause on? Well, I think for Claire and I, unfortunately, it started, um, you know, that, that night on, uh, on the Danforth uh, Avenue, which um, goes back to July of 2018, uh, 22nd. And, uh, you know, it's really the worst you know, the worst scenario possible, you know, you, your, our daughter was out with a group of friends. She was one of the groups affected, ultimately one of 13 victims um, and, two, and two young women who lost their lives, which is just tragic. Um, but, but, you know, we, we entered into this because our daughter was injured and we got to know the other families because of that. We started to become more interested, obviously, in the issue because it came right into our home. We started to reach out to others who've gone through this and try to research, you know, what it, what was happening. Because I think from our perspective, very early on, it was about, okay, this has now happened to us. This seems to be happening too much to people. What can we do? You know, and, and not everybody can do that. And not everybody reacted the way that we did. Uh, we did find other families from that group that wanted to also make a difference as a result if they could and and if they should you know because it is a it's a polarizing debate Nate and I, I know you know I know you know that and we listened to the podcast with uh, with uh, Mr. Blair uh, yesterday Minister Blair yesterday to know, to know what this means for people and uh, so we didn't enter it lightly but we feel you know now after you know almost a year and a half or more later that uh, we've tried to become better informed so that's and I know other families who have been affected are thankful for your efforts because even those who feel the same way have some difficulty taking on that advocacy role in the same way. And so are appreciative of your ability and willingness to stand up and really take center stage. So when you had, a, when there was a press conference before the election calling for action, you can were center stage taking this on. And, and it, could you ever have imagined being in that situation? Well, the first thing was, I think, as we talked with all of the families, so the answer is no. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, then life, life brings uh, circumstances to you and you have to choose what to do. Um, 
And I think we were able to choose what we did because of a few things, like, and mostly because our daughter was so strong through the process. Like, I, I think every time as we have met as a group of families to, to help each other, it's been around, does this make us heal a little bit more or feel a little bit better or able to cope with this or live with it in some way? I think that's the first measure is, is this going to improve or will this uh, affect you in a way that is unintended? So I think we were able to do it because Samantha was so strong and, and her friends and others who who stepped forward and were willing to stand with us. That's what allowed us to go ahead. And it's impossible. I, I have two young kids and I can't imagine you spend your whole life raising them and then in one instant they can potentially be taken away. And and obviously that moves you to the issue. Was gun control an issue that you cared about before that? No, it wasn't. And it didn't come to our front door, so to speak. So this was galvanizing. I mean, obviously when this happens, it's it's a shock, first of all, to us. And then, yeah, we had to decide uh, going forward, well, could we just sit back and not not talk about this, not find some kind of answer, I suppose, uh, and a way to heal, as Ken said. And I think what happened uh, just two months after the shooting was that uh, we saw uh, Bill Blair was having, Minister Blair was having a town hall near us, uh, which you moderated, and we decided, let, let's go and learn a bit more. Let's find out what, what we're missing here. Um, this, this can't be happening to us, that we were still in shock. I think at the time I was, and I, I just felt like I needed some answer. And it was just the start, I think, for us, uh, where we, we learned more. We, we met uh, Louis March um, from that meeting. Um, we got to know him and his uh, zero gun violence movement. And um, it was just eye-opening. It was just the start of us going on a journey to find out more about why gun violence is so prevalent in Canada and to let others know that, um, you know, we, we think we're not like the states in, in terms of the, the buildup of, of guns, the militarization of the public, and yet, you know, you can look at the numbers that we have in the newspapers every day. There's another shooting, um, oftentimes it involved a handgun, um, and sadly, in Nova Scotia, we've had another mass shooting. Uh, it, it's it's in your face, and it it does come to your front door. Sadly, that's the truth of it. The gun violence is on the rise, and we want to learn more. I mentioned to Bill, but I used to attend vigils with my mom for the White Ribbon campaign in the wake of the Montreal massacre, and there are advocates out of that horrible tragedy that have called for stronger gun control for years. And have you found similar voices who have experienced something very similar to yourselves from, from other horrible events? And ha have you come together in, in some way? Yeah, it's, dif it's difficult because I think people, you know, first of all, we went through it as a group and that those um, women uh, from Montreal went through it as a group. Most of the time you go through it alone. And I, I would say a lot of the, the mothers that we met and fathers who had experienced this, um, you know, really 
um, were on their own, and so they've they've tried to do a number of, of initiatives, but it is difficult. Like we we don't we haven't had. I think recently there's been more coordination, but they're really, to your point about, we have people, enthusiasts, who are pushing for, you know, status quo or, you know, or even a loosening of, uh, of regulation around gun ownership um, because of their enthusiasms, let's call it that. Um, and on the other side, there really has, there, there's been attempts, I think, to try to consolidate that voice, but it's harder. You know, for one thing, you're peddling uh, prevention which is always harder to sell. You know, you shouldn't do this because of things that might happen. You know, it's theoretical and hypothetical. I think from our point of view, the reason I think people do listen is because they realize, oh my God, this did happen. And it did happen to these folks. So when you look at cold statistics on a page, then when that turns into a person you know, um, uh, and someone, a loved one, or and their friends, then wow, it, it, it takes a whole other level emotionally uh, to you know, to want to come into this discussion, so so yes, yeah, we've, we've met I, lots of folks, amazing people, amazing people with all kinds of different stories, and there are many out there who are living with this because you never, you never stop living with it. I, I, I feel the same way, but and yet so much more removed in many respects than yourselves, who have had a, a daughter directly affected. I remember in the immediately morning after I, I had gone to sleep seeing that it had happened through news updates on my phone but not knowing the connection as it were and waking up and getting text messages and then 8 a.m being with nor and her friend and her friend's mom and and you know our young liberal president saying to me that morning i haven't been able to sleep every time i close my eyes i see my friend I, I see it happen, and I, I will never, I will never in my life forget that. And yet, I am, I am removed from the the direct experience that you would have had, that you would have felt that all the all all that much more acutely. Well, I think a lot of people feel that way, Nate. And frankly, the, the community so, feels it. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's everybody's yeah. issue, and we all feel it. And and that's why there, it's important to to talk about it when you need to, and to to support one another. And find people that can can help. And it also expresses that you know victimhood is uh, has a multiplier. You know, um, there is the person that's directly affected. There's their family, the community, all of the people that witnessed it, the first responders that deal with it, the people that care, as you did, from a point of view of what do I do, and then all of the folks who are. Uh, you know, dealing with things at the hospital, you know, I mean, the doctors who have been, who have been some of the most powerful advocates we've had. Exactly. Because I think they said, look, we see this, you know, in the same way that we've listened to them in the current pandemic, look, this is what we're seeing. And that's been a very powerful, I think, incentive for us to do the right thing at home. And I, they, they, a number of them have, for the same, similar reasons, said, this is what we're seeing. And, you know, we're seeing too many homicides and suicides by very powerful weapons. We think some things need to change. They've expressed their ideas. We're aligned with um, really all of them. So, um, so that's been that's been part of the conversation. But to your point, victimhood. So every every stat, every single person represents a number of people, a lot of people in the community that are are suddenly without that person for reasons that are very hard to understand. And typically at the end of a very violent death, you know, these are weapons. Like we we also. I think the other part of it is we smooth talk around, you know, what the what we're talking about here. What, what are we, 
you know, that Philadelphia is struck. What are we talking about here? What we're talking about are weapons of the very high, you know, the top of the pyramid of weaponry, you know, that you can hold and own. And it deserves that kind of respect and consideration. It's not like owning anything else. And we have seen yourselves and advocates call for action. And just recently, we've seen some action. What was your reaction to the government's, the government's recent announcement? Well, I think we felt really good for groups that have been at this for a long time. Like that, I mean, so for Nate, to your point, like this is a conversation that really sharpened in its focus in 1989, because I think it said, here's a person who was legally entitled to have a certain kind of weapon that was extremely powerful and able to do a lot of damage in a very short amount of time because of a moment of hatred and or despair. You know, so at the end of this, you have this tremendous, and then that, that really, I think, said, okay, well, wait a minute, we haven't really dealt with this. So then there was some action leading up until around the mid-90s. And then, and then really not much, and then even a loosening of regulation. So what it said to us is, this is an immediate and corrective action that is not perfect. Um, it, and I don't think it was announced as such. We said immediately, let's get 105,000 weapons from 72,000 owners out of circulation right now because we know that whatever the next legal framework is, which will be subject to debate, we'll take these out. So, and then we will suggest the criteria, and I'm sure that part of that suggestion was to get the very kind of feedback you're getting, which has been enthusiastically expressed on both sides. It didn't go far enough, it went too far. What about these? What about my shotguns? You know, that's useful, I think, discourse. And then maybe there'll be some corrections. I, I certainly heard that in what uh, the minister said yesterday and has said at other times. But you know, but to be clear, this, this was the low-hanging fruit of this discussion. This was owed. This is owed back to that first group of women in Montreal in 1989 to say that weapons like the one used there are not were not to be, you know, even introduced into the Canadian marketplace. And yet here they are. So let's take them out. That's that's the way we took it. And we have, I think, a lot of the same questions. And I, you know, I, I think it's great that and 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 frankly, like coming at this from a completely apolitical stand, I have to give props to like you guys are taking all of the heat on this, you know. And that's that doesn't seem fair. I certainly hope the other parties who are like-minded will step forward and start to put their shoulder to the wheel because they've been very quiet. I'm not gonna make we don't want to make this a big political discussion, but credit where credit is due. You guys said you were going to do something. So while we may agree it took a little longer than we'd hoped, <laughs> eventually you're coming through. And that's really super important uh, for the country. And you have written recently about the announcement to say thank you and now what's to come, what's next. And obviously we lost Reese because of a handgun that was stolen from a shop in Saskatchewan. Your daughter was injured because of that same weapon. And what do you want to see when it comes to handguns? What do you want to see when it comes to future action on gun control? Yeah, I, I think first of all, we have to recognize you know, where we are and figure out what the objective is. You know, it's in, I mean, if you start to get into the stats as we have unfortunately you know, now done, I mean, you realize that Canada is very military. I mean, that's the wrong word. Like there's a high degree of gun ownership and that has to be acknowledged and in some, and certainly respected. You know, I mean, we have like, I think it's 34% or 31 to 34%, something like that gun ownership, you know, like 34 guns per hundred people. So that doesn't mean all of those people, because there's some 
there is some, uh, you know, uh, aggregation, you know, like the people own more than one weapon. But the fact is there's 34 guns for every 100 people in Canada, which puts us pretty high on the list. Now, for, for perspective, the United States has like 102 or 120, like depending on who you look at, per 100 people. So they have even a higher accumulation because not everybody owns guns. But that's the first thing. You can kind of pause and go, huh, well, that's interesting. So that means we have a lot of guns. And and then when then you say, well, is it resulting in gun violence or suicides at a greater rate than other nations that are similar to us? And that's where I think it will be useful in the in the discourse to look at this. And we feel that yes, it is still high. Like uh, you know, even accounting for that, if you look at other countries, New Zealand actually, interestingly, is not too far off in terms of total guns per hundred people, in terms of their numbers. But they've taken action now, and they're seeing benefit. And they have fewer homicides, they have fewer suicides um, per capita, resulting from gun usage. And I think what the first thing that would be useful is to is to have the federal government lead a, a an expectation about where we should be objectively. And then a number of these initiatives that we're taking would be with a view to that. You know, Canadians should first debate, do we want to be safer, less safe, as safe as other like countries? And when I say like countries, we can't compare ourselves to the United States. We just have a completely different attitude. North yeah, or Central America or South America, like those countries have a different philosophy and they have different rates and so but but how about Germany? You know, how about the UK, how about, um, you know, how about Sweden, how about Finland, how about Iceland, like these are countries that actually have large, you know, penetration of guns, but have better outcomes. And I think we need to, we need to say, like, why can't we be number one? And so from my, our perspective, first of all, I think our objective should be to cut the number of homicides and suicides in half. That would put us kind of in the, in the better side of the pack you know, of those like-minded countries. So the first rallying cry for all of us, including gun owners, should be, yeah, let's cut this thing in half and let's take measures that, and let's keep measuring this until we get to that point, because then we will have the kind of public safety outcomes that would, would you know, I think reflect Canadian values, um, which is another discussion that we've had. You know, Canadian values are to keep each other safe and to look after each other, and frankly, that should be rallying price. So I realized that was kind of a long-winded diet. No, but I think that is useful to frame the ongoing conversation because I think that's right. I, and frankly, I think as a starting point, we ought to say that our goal should be to significantly reduce homicides and suicides as a result of uh, guns. And so with that goal in mind, there are some measures you can take to curb the private possession of guns where there's diversion into the illegal marketplace. So many people do point to the United States as a source of guns. And so obviously there has to be work at the border too. We know though, based on at least Toronto police stats, that a significant percentage still, not a majority, but a significant percentage of crime guns are sourced domestically. And so there are rules and, and potentially new and, and stronger rules that need to be put in place, certainly around storage, which Bill mentioned the other day. I, I've long thought that uh, restrictions on the private possession of some of these very dangerous weapons, if you want to use it at a range where you already have to use it, and there's already a law that says you have to use it there, then why not store it at the range too? But there presumably are a suite of measures when we talk about a comprehensive approach to address gun violence. Do you, would you want to emphasize a particular one, two, three measures? 
Yeah, I think I think that makes so. First of all, in terms of what's been proposed, so let's say there are 12 million weapons out in Canada then that are legal, you know, legally held because they're non-registered, but they're still legal. You know, still have a, a PAL or whatever. Then what are what are we talking about here? So what we're talking about on the on the assault rifle, and I will use that phrase because in marketing you see combat, NATO, warlike, blah blah blah, all day long. So to to selectively decide that we shouldn't use the term assault rifle to describe a group of guns, I think is really prescient. Um, anyway, so coming back to this, we've got, so you take those guns that you've proposed, that's 100,000 out of 12 million. And then you take handguns out, it's like, I don't know, 2 million out of 12 million. So now we're down to 10, which would still leave a lot of guns, yeah. you know, for a lot of people who want to use them. Okay, all right. So now, but what we've done is we've taken the most, overspec and overpowered ones for the, for the task and the ones that are the most concealed, the ones that are used most often in crime in big cities. A lot of us live in big cities, ladies and gentlemen, so let's take control of this discussion and say, let's get rid of those. Now, I think you're right. Like, So what, what do we mean by get rid of? And should there be a tolerance for some usage models where the ownership transfers? Maybe. But, you know, I think the first, I mean, the UK went super extreme and they have like out of that basket of countries, they have the best outcomes. You know, they don't let pistols shoot. Like they went through a big John Major, Tony Blair. They went through the, the, the you know, the difficulty of having this discussion and target pistols gone. So, and they have the best outcome. Like, I mean, that's just, I don't know how to frame it any other way. Like the UK has, has, has immigration. The UK has a strata of different economic considerations they have a connection to you know europe and other countries they are a trading nation maybe they don't have a long uh, land border but they certainly are connected so like all of these attributes that have been thrown up as excuses you know we have things to do that are different because we're canadian but this country the one obvious thing that's different is their attitude towards handouts so i think it absolutely has to be explored it has to be tightened up but, you know, and I think as Claire and I've learned and, you know, there's more to it. Like, I think to your point, we need to look at at that. We need to look at the, you know, just putting into into place, restoring the things, some of the things that went missing, the things that you've suggested under Bill C-71. It is about, you know, I, I, again, recognizing what you're holding in your hand as a weapon and it needs a different level of care and concern from those that are, are using it and those that are protecting. I think most people want to want to follow those those guidelines and rules. That's absolutely true. So, but the Bill C seventy one needs to come into effect. Um, you know, background checks, retail record keeping, uh, store you know transportation rules that are restored. That that has to happen. So we'll let you comment on that in a second because Mr. MP, you're the guy. And then finally. <laughs> You know, I, I think there's a, a number of other root causes, and those are bigger social questions, but the end of despair, the end of violence, you know, there's a gun often, and we do need to look at what that what that means. Um, and if there are, you know, strong institutions, strong school systems, strong health, like we, we're realizing through this pandemic how much we lean on these things, and it's true for the gun violence crisis. You know, I mean, the strength or, the, the weakness of those institutions will help to address the very root causes that you're talking about. So it's a big, that's a big conversation. But that, does, and that does not excuse in the short term the very tactical things you've suggested. So we are 100% about the, you know, taking these measures on gun control for those categories of weapons. We are about the regulation 
around the ownership of the guns that you've described. And it doesn't have to be any more arduous than that. And finally, there are, are some bigger societal questions that, uh, that we, we, I need to ask, I think, too. Yeah, and when you think of a comprehensive approach, you think short-term steps, medium-term steps, and long-term steps as far as outcomes. And there are steps we can take now, and there are investments we can make now, but, but will have an impact much further down the road so long as we sustain those investments. And so it does have to be a much broader picture with, as you know, it's not just one measure versus another one. It's, it's yeah. all of the measures put together. On, on the measures that we have previously promised and then implemented through C71, I did ask the minister's office and I was told when it comes to the authorization to transport rules we're looking at within the year, when it comes to the classification of firearms with respect to allowing cabinet to overrule criminal code provisions that will be changed very quickly, very quickly for government, I assume means months, but I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't think it means tomorrow. Okay. And uh, on the background checks, which I viewed to be the most significant change out of C71, I was told that there is a bit, not a delay because of COVID. So the, the good thing is there's been no delay as a result of the pandemic in terms of the forward movement on any of these issues, but that, there, we're looking at a 12 to 24 month timeline because of RCMP IT systems. I was told. I, I don't know. I don't know the full details of, of that explanation and timeline. And hopefully, it's closer to the 12 than the 24. But that's that's the best answer that I was able to glean from from the minister's office in advance of of our chat. And then in terms of our promises going forward, it's funny sometimes you hear this ban on assault rifles is undemocratic and. We literally had this in our platform as one of the top three issues we ran on and we won the election and that's how democracy works. But we also promised a not a ban on handguns from the federal government, but to give municipalities the ability to ban handguns. And I have always been skeptical of this idea and I worry that then it puts the onus on people like you to go city by city by city, trying to change rules at every stop, and how can that plausibly work? I, I just don't know. Yeah, I, I think we're the same. Like you know, we've talked to people who have looked at this too. Um, you know, because uh, it's, it's been proposed in the past. I, I, you know, I think what it reflects is the minister telling his cabinet there's you know there's some regional resistance, you know, to this idea. But the, but the simple fact is we all live in a community together and Saskatchewan gun, Toronto streets, like, you know, that's just the way it is. And, you know, I think we've started to think about this in terms of reducing, nothing's going to be perfect, but we have to reduce the potential points of failure. So where are they? You know, they are because of people having them in their homes and often because they're then accessible for not only homicide, but suicide. And I, you know, that's tragic. That's a, that's a problem, you know, and then the second part is related to, you know, retail, you know, which we don't really talk about. And one of the organizations all over that there are, you know, reminds us there are 4,000 or greater than 4,000 gun retail shops across the country, which means you have inventory, you have security uh, vulnerabilities. Like, and, and it's not like these folks don't work hard at that. It's just, you can't be perfect. But I come back to that one statement, you know, and, and to make it personal. So what is the cost of one mistake? It's huge. It's the loss of Reese Fallon. It's the loss of Juliana Cozis. It's my daughter shot in the hip. And you live with that. Like, that's just not right. So even if you cut it in half, like if 
So to to put a number back up, you know, it looked like something like two per hundred thousand are what we're talking about. So what is a hundred thousand people? Well, that's like the size of our riding, right? So that's a person in the beaches East York that we're giving up every year because we haven't done anything. That's that's what has to happen. Like well, that's where we have to get to, and that's what. That's why we're, you know, so enthusiastic about, you know, driving this now. And if the decision is made in the beaches to not do something or Toronto, and yet Brampton makes a different decision, well, that's just not the way our community is built. You know, it's just we, you know, and and frankly, people in the beaches need to be concerned for lots of reasons for about what goes on in other neighborhoods. So we can't just leave it to some kind of local decision making platform. I, I just think even from a values perspective, it's not really the right message. It's not really, it's not really a very Canadian message. I'm sorry. And at a minimum, as a matter of defaults, because defaults do matter, I just don't understand why, if you are to give municipalities the power to make local decisions, why you don't have a baseline that is the strongest baseline possible. And then you put the onus on the gun rights advocates and you put the onus on the politicians who lead these communities to say we want to open our doors to more guns and then they are responsible if something happens in their community and and that changes the dynamic of the conversation completely rather than putting the onus on victims and, and advocates such as yourself to to work in some cross-country way to try and sign up as many municipalities which just seems so very unworkable to me yeah, and I think the difficulty is still if those decisions are made, that's still a risk for all of us. Sure. You know, so I, I mean, I think. Listen, I appreciate. But once again, you guys are at least having a discussion. You know, our government is at least putting forward something as opposed to nothing, and saying the status quo is not good enough. Like that's the first statement of recognition, and so ideas need to come out of that. And look again, like we we've also tried to meet with other other folks um, who are on the other side of it, you know, and, and try, try to understand. And, and I understand like some people just want to shoot paper targets and they have competitions and it's an Olympic sport and blah, blah, blah. So, okay, we'd have to find some accommodation for that. that. I agree. So, but the ownership model, the way it is distributed to homes, retail stores, large marketing, wide distribution. And uh, it just seems out of step, even with what Canadians want. I think Claire, there was a survey, right? English greed. Right. Oh, it came out last week, uh, two weeks ago, and um, yeah, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of of support from the public. Eighty um, percent, I think, close to eighty percent of Canadians want change. They want to to stand up for meaningful discourse beyond the discourse now for change with our gun legislation. And we've got medical associations now that are supporting this. Chiefs of the police, mayors across Canada are standing up and beyond just our groups, the survivor groups, the victims groups, women's groups, um, it, it's and the doctors. The doctors nationally have come together to to collectively just join us together and to say, you know, enough is enough. Um, one death is one too many. Yeah, so it's hard to say why you'd want to have a, a system that would allow, you know, the Again, we're in a democracy. It's been discussed. We've heard the debates. That certainly, um, you know, 150. It seems like every time there's a, a move on guns, about 115,000 people sign a petition. That's not even a majority of gun owners. I mean, as I said, you've got a lot of gun owners. That's not that's not a majority of 
of gun owners that are even reflecting their opinions. You wrote recently, and you've, you've spoken about this already, that we might be much safer than the United States, but we don't rank well after that in, in the OECD and, and otherwise. But you also wrote something that I thought was quite a powerful way of framing it, which is you want to disarm the nation from weapons that serve no legitimate purpose. And I, I think more people need to hear that message just as a matter of Canadian culture, what do we want in our Canadian society? And when we do see weapons that are so very dangerous, there's obvious downside. You've lived that downside. And then the upside is target shooting. And is that when target shooting can be accomplished with other less dangerous weapons, is that something that really ought to register on the scale at all? Yeah, and it's a difficult, you know, this is the trade-off. Like we're, we are, we see ourselves as Canadians in a, in, in many different ways and there can be regional differences for sure you know I, I grew up in central Ontario and like I mean the first thing that happened is I went I went to the mayor of Aurelia and then that's what I mean and said you know I grew up in this town like how, how do you guys feel and he, without hesitation said absolutely there should be a ban on handguns and assault rifles like I'm you know and he's in the middle of you know the kind of place that people go to as a starting off point to go hunting and fishing and boating and all of the outdoor activities. So, you know, they've had counselors call for that. Like, you know, there's support. I, I think that most, I, I believe that most of the people who, and through polls and other, must be part of the group that are filling this out, are prepared to give something up because the trade-off right now is not fair. It's not fair between the public safety balance and the use of weapons balance. And, you know, to your point, you know, if you can safely accommodate some of these scenarios in a much more restrictive manner, then, you know, okay, let's talk about what that can look like. But right now, it seems like, you know, they're talking about property rights and, you know, the right to do anything I want to do. And that's not, that's not even constitutionally true. I mean, there's, there's no basis for any of that kind of rhetoric. Other than, you know, instead, we have rights and obligations. And those obligations are out of balance with what has been, you know, moved forward in terms of, you know, being able to do things with these weapons. And it's not like the first time we've had this debate, you know, around things like cars and smoking and pit bulls. And I don't know, like lots of times we have these discussions because people want to do something. And then, they, and I'm sure that, you know, in an unintended way, it, you know, it results in a public health outcome that is not not acceptable even to them. So, you know, and I think this is a time where we have to get behind that and see that the status quo is not sustained. I got a question on Facebook Live last night about the right to own a gun in Canada, and the constitutional question is obviously ripped out of an American system because we don't even have a right to property in Canada in our charter, let alone a right to a piece of property that, that is so very dangerous. And so in Canada, there's, it's a privilege, not a right. That's clear enough at the same time. So if you mentioned Claire coming out to that town hall in the wake of the very, very soon after, and, and our community was galvanized and Julie and I wanted to make sure we were, providing a space for that conversation. What we saw though, was a lot of people come from outside of our community, wear their t-shirts and say, we, we care about guns and we wanna use our guns and our, our rights need to be respected. And it's easy to dismiss the, the sort of fringe voices on that front, the people who 
come at me on social media in bizarre, aggressive ways. But at the same time, there are many, overwhelmingly, gun owners are responsible. And gun owners going to a range and firing a handgun if it is if it can be done safely and there's no diversion outside of that range and secure uh, storage is secure enough is there a is there a compromise solution here is there a way of getting in front of the gun advocates and saying uh, we understand your interests here are my interests let's sit down together and find a way forward when you sit down with gun advocates do you listen and 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 do you try to respond in in some compromise fashion sure i mean as i said the first thing is to understand you know and and this was this was kind of you know news. I think we you know I'll believe the polling for Columbine view you know around you know Canadians have no guns and Americans have lots of guns. You know that's not true. I mean Canadians have lots of guns. I mean that's the first thing. So lots of people there's a reason for that, and you know people want to use them in different ways. But then I think I think the key question for Claire and I was around you know some countries have asked the question well, why do you need one as opposed to why should you you know what is your right to have, or like doing the negative, you know, opt-in, like I'm going to have a gun until you tell me I can't have, one. you know, that seemed to be the wrong way to do it. Instead, it's like, you know, rec again, recognizing what they are and what they're capable of. And the fact mm. that very, very few mistakes, extremely few mistakes create all kinds of devastation. That's, that's, I think our position is you can't be perfect. We know you can't be perfect. They know they can't be perfect. So we have to do things now that reduce because we have a trend line that's going in the wrong direction. We've got to do all things that reduce. You know, and so, and, and you know, I think you talked about rights. I mean, you have an expectation to understand what is legal. So I think that's, and I think the government needs to be clear on that. And I think they're trying to move now to say this is what we mean and update things that have fallen out of date. So that's, that's good. Um, you know, um, you know, I feel like these are all you know, ways that I would start to approach the question. And then I don't, you know, we're not denying, you know, we're not after all gun scenarios. You know, I think we're just out of taking the kinds of weapons that, that really don't serve the scenarios that those advocates say are really, you know, the, the reason that they want to have so many guns. Okay, I respect that. But what are the actual tools you require? And the ones that are, you know, redesigned military style assault rifles um, and and handguns are a problem. They're, they're a problem for too many people. Legal ones, illegal ones, a whole mess. And countries that have taken much stricter stand have better outcomes. In terms of the benefits of, say, target shooting, you can enjoy many of the benefits of target shooting without turning to those kinds of weapons. Sure, absolutely. You know, I mean, even if, if they even said, all right, we're getting rid of everything except for what's the Olympic, you know, sanctioned in the Olympics or something, that would wipe out a ton <laughs> of different models and wide scale retail, which are both a problem. Like, you know, I mean, well, I appreciate, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your advocacy. And it's uh, strange in many ways, the events of the Danforth, just how people's lives become intertwined in so many different ways. And so I have no doubt I will continue to be alongside you and try to elevate your voices uh, as much as I can along the way uh, as we continue to live through that. Well, we appreciate that. And really, you know, for, for you and uh, for the Liberal Party to carry this, this, this ball, it's been really, um, 
you know, you deserve credit 100% for this from our side, and we we give you that, and we hope that um, in a minority parliament that you'll get the support you need from the other parties to to do the things you need to do to make the country safer. It's the will of the country. It's what we want to see happen. And again, it's not a complete assault on every kind of different, you know, gun owner scenario. It's really for the ones that cause the greatest risk and harm because we are not doing as well as we should. And we need to understand that and internalize. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. You can contact Ken and Claire and their advocacy group, Danforth Families for Safe Communities, at danforthfamilies.com. And you can subscribe for future episodes of Uncommons at uncommons.ca.